So this is the week of Thanksgiving, and I'm fully aware that for most of us, this Thanksgiving isn't the one any of us actually imagine. The coronavirus cases in this country are out of control. I live in California, and while we aren't on lockdown, lockdown, it's lockdown-ish. There's a curfew in place. Uh, capacity has been reduced even further in most indoor spaces, and the state is encouraging everyone not to have Thanksgiving gatherings. Now, my mother was supposed to come out to California to visit me, but she's high risk because of some pre-existing conditions. And even though I've taken 10 COVID tests as of the taping of this podcast, all negative, by the way, and I get tested every week for my television show on Vice, which, by the way, in case you don't know, it's 1130 p.m. on Thursdays following Vice News. Uh, I would be inconsolable if my mother contracted COVID while visiting me or if, even if something happened if I went to visit her. That's because I'm not selfish, which is our word of the week. The selfishness that many Americans have displayed during COVID isn't a bug. It's a feature. This is a country that is just drunk on individualism, on individual gain and success. And because of that, the idea of community in this country often is a very difficult concept to grasp. For example, I can't believe that there is arguing going on on social media about whether or not Joe Biden should use an executive order to forgive college debt as soon as he's in office. Now, if it were another how are we supposed to pay for this arguments? I guess I could sort of kind of see that, even though when it comes to bailing out corporations, cruise lines, airlines, banks, somehow that pot of gold is always endless. When it's something that might actually help average people, everybody wants to break out a calculator and a balance sheet. I don't get it. But the conversation or rather the argument about student loan forgiveness was centered around this idea that if the Democrats do this, then working class people, and we should know by now that working class is just a euphemism for white people, that this will piss off working class people who see this as an unjust reward for elitist. As I looked through many of the comments on social media, I saw a lot of people who were also against this because they had to work 50, 11 jobs to pay their student loans. Then other people should have to do the same too. Since they didn't get debt relief, nobody can't have debt relief. This was a real thing, but I thought about it and realized this resentment wasn't just directed at those who dared to educate themselves. Those who actually bought into this idea that higher education was a way to better yourself in this country. This resentment was also directed at, and I think you can guess where I'm going with this, black people. See, nobody is suffering from college loan debt like black folks, which makes sense because most of us don't have access to generational wealth and usually can't afford to pay for college ourselves. 86% of black students borrow federal loans and black graduates are five times more likely to default on their loans than their white peers. Now, here's something you could set your watch to anytime a problem disproportionately impacts us. And there's a policy proposed to help. The resentment train is punctual like a motherfucker. My girl, Elizabeth Warren, the former presidential candidate, has been banging the drum for the government to cancel student loan debt. 
It was a critical part of her platform. And she recently tweeted that canceling this debt needs to be one of Biden's first steps when he takes over the presidency, since it has been a key driver in inequity and income disparity. If Biden followed Warren's plan, which would allow a household that made under 100 grand to be forgiven a $50,000 in debt tax free. And if you, of course, made more than that, your forgiveness credit would just decline by a dollar for each three dollars of income that you made above 100,000. And if you made over 250,000 a year, then you just wouldn't get any forgiveness. This plan would cost $1.25 trillion over 10 years. Now, before you go, holy shit, that's a lot of money. Last year alone, the United States spent $718 billion on military spending. We spend more money on the military than the next 10 countries combined. And we don't blink once about that shit. But let me get back to my larger point. People just don't want to see other people win. Or they only want to see people winning if they're also winning, they damn sure don't want to ever see black people win. Doesn't matter if they win it or not. That's why the word of the week is selfish. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that my guest today didn't have to worry about student loans, not because she came from a rich family, but because she was such a dynamite soccer player in high school. She got a full ride to the university of Portland. She later became one of the greatest soccer players in history, winning two World Cups and a gold medal at the 2012 London Olympics. But as much as she's a badass on the soccer field, she's a badass when it comes to speaking out about LGBTQ issues, social injustice, and other marginalized communities. When Colin Kaepernick took a knee in 2016, there was only one white professional athlete who joined him. And she's my next guest. So pleased to welcome the homie, Megan Rapino to Jamel Hill is Unbothered. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, so I'm going to make a a confession to you, Megan, first. And that is, um, I have not finished your book. I will tell you what page I am on because uh, I use that <laughs> wonderful note that you sent me as a bookmark. I am on page 189. So I'm almost done with it. Okay. Yeah, you're almost done. You're almost done. Yes. But I'm glad because it's funny. I woke up this morning to, um, I was like, I think I can finish this by the time uh, our interview comes. And um, I didn't get a chance to, to, I didn't read fast enough, I guess, to do it. But at least I admit, I, I'm glad that I did because otherwise I would have missed my own mention in the book. So <laughs> yeah. thank you for that. Of course. I was like, oh. Oh, look at I, this. I hear you though. I feel that because I'm I'm like, I know how to read, but every time I go to a read book, I'm like, this shit is taking so long. Am I reading every single letter of every single word of every single I'm like, why is it taking so long? It takes me forever to read. So 
I feel you're absorbing you're absorbing it all. Yes, I am absorbing it all. But I mean, as far as as memoirs go, like I, maybe uh, you know, maybe it's a it's a soccer player thing, or specifically a U.S. women's national soccer team thing. Because like I read Abby's book in like a day, and I think with yours is this will probably take me a day and a half. So it's good. I, I think that as a writer, that's really good. And I don't know if that was intentional on your part that you want to give some. You know, uh, I'm thinking about Obama's book, which is 798 pages. I'm like, woo. He has 790 pages of things to say, though. I'm like, how do I stretch this out? I don't want it to be like a booklet, you know? I'm like, how do I stretch this out? Get as much? Uh, yeah, I, I tried to, you know, pack as much in there, but also, you know, not not bore people to death. So I am also in the process of writing a memoir. Um, and I, I think for people who have not tried this process, one, I... I immediately got like 20% in. I was like, whoever writes a book is totally insane. Like, why am I doing this? Um, but it is hard to boil your life down into just very specific incidents. So how did you how did you go about that process of like what to what to put in here, what to leave out? How did you manage that? Well, I think I had to like get over myself a little bit because I was like, I don't know. I'm like, is it that interesting? Like, do people really like that interested? Like, because to me, it's like, I've obviously lived it. I know it. So I'm like, is this story when I was younger? Is it really that important? But like work, I work with a, a writer, Emma Brox, um, who helped me. I mean, if I had to write this thing myself, I would be on the first letter still trying to figure out, do I start it with the, <laughs> do I start it with my? Um, but I think I tried to, Overall, I really wanted to not have it just be like this chronological sports memoir. I did this. I sacrificed. I work hard. Um, it actually really irritates me when athletes do that, when they lean so hard into like the sacrifice and the hard work. And I say it in the book. I'm like, everybody works hard. Everybody sacrifices. I'm like, we were born with this insane amount of like just God-given talent. Like, that's a huge reason why we are where we are. It's not like, you know, I had to, you know, work my way into, you know, all these things. So I, I tried to make it a little bit different and give a little bit more perspective and have it be about more other things that sort of soccer was the vehicle or sports was the vehicle for it. So, um, you know, especially when it came to to sharing, you know, more personal incidents. I mean, you share a lot about your brother and I was aware of this story that had been written or about him before this book came out, but sharing about your brother, sharing about like your family. Um, did you have to have conversations with them about like, Hey, this is going to be in this book. And how did those conversations go? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think those are kind of conversations that, I mean, honestly, I feel like I've been having with them. I think being from a small town, um, and a very conservative, white, homogenous town, um, you know, coming out in 2012, it was kind of like, you know, my mom works in a restaurant and so people always coming through and, you know, it's kind of like, just so you guys know, I'm coming out, like this is what's going to happen. And, you know, having those conversations with them. Um, and then obviously with my brother and stuff, we've definitely had those conversations. I started speaking about that, I think maybe 2015. Um, I mean, I'm sure at times I've shared way too much and they're like, you know, we live here, right? And you don't like, you know, this is like, people are now looking at us like, what the hell is going on? Um, you know, it happened with the kneeling as well. Like, I mean, my mom, like, I feel like honestly, she caught more in-person backlash and flack than I did because people never come up to me. There's been literally one person 
the whole time that's actually said something like to my face like i disagree with you most people are just on twitter but my mom's like in this restaurant people you know trying to give give her an attitude which she didn't take at all um and then yeah just you know i definitely gave them the book before all my family members i was like you guys need to read this i want to make sure that i am telling the truth but you know this some of these stories are not just mine to tell so i i definitely wanted a, a sign off on all those things make sure they were comfortable talking about it but i think it's it's challenged them as well to to like think outside themselves or the communities that they live in and kind of expand expand the way that they think also was anybody not pleased with how they were perceived I don't think so. Um, I was really kind of worried uh, or, or tried to take a lot of care with, with my dad and how I sort of portrayed that because I think in part, there's two ways that I was seeing my dad. Like he's, he's my dad, obviously, but I think this is a story that a lot of people are going through right now. A lot of white people are going through of like, you know, you thought your parents were this one thing and then they're, you know, your dad's voting for a, a crazy person and a white supremacist and, anti everything that i am and that i stand for and that i support so how do you like balance those two things and i think i i tried to do that at least but also like you know people's truth is gonna land on them the way that it was and i'm you know i'm not gonna pretend like i'm i'm not you know upset with him still about what you know he supported and who he supported in 16 and i well, well i don't think he voted for trump this time but i definitely don't think he voted for biden either so i'm like <sighs> It's not great, Dad. We're, need, we're gonna need to come a little bit further. But I think overall people are okay. Uh, but I haven't talked to everyone who I've spoken about, so maybe some people are. Well, I could relate to that part in particular because, um, and people saw saw me say this on on Twitter. I actually said it in response to somebody who was saying that, and and this was not this year. This was actually maybe in 2016 or 2017, and they were saying, "Oh, you know, you have to find some middle ground with people who support Trump, and you know, do you think you can get along with somebody that can that supports Donald Trump?" And I was like, "Well, I, I actually don't have any choice because my mother voted for Donald Trump. So, like, I, you know, when you, it's a whole lot of reasons why reasons like yourself, I'm saving for the book. <laughs> so, in order to go go through what I, I think some of those were and how it it impacted our, our relationship, particularly when I had my little dust up um, with the president. And so um, I was very curious about how you manage that relationship, because you say in the book that after you find that out, you guys went some some time where you did not talk. Um, do you I mean thinking about how all of that happened and how that played out? Do you feel like your relationship is still impacted by that? Or is this something that has kind of eased up over time? I think that we've gotten more used to it now, but uh, I think it definitely still impacts the relationship. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the middle ground conversation, the across the aisle conversation, I just don't really get because we're not talking about the same thing. If you want to talk about across the aisle, middle ground on, you know, our foreign policy views or whatever, we can do that. But like, we're literally, you're trying to equate, you know, like a, a, a theoretical policy decision on my life and on my rights as a human being as a woman as a gay woman and you know further than that on on black people and on immigration on all these things which those those are not the same things and so i feel there's still tension there like i you know i i don't think that you know a ton of his views have changed um as you know a lot of the country's views have have not changed or even solidified even more but I think for me, it's like, I'm gonna continue to have a relationship 
with my dad, but at every you know instance, I'm gonna make very clear what is acceptable to me and what's not. And if we get in these conversations, he's trying to equate you know two things that aren't the same. I'm gonna say that, and I'm gonna continually try to you know express my position and, and my view um, about how I see the world. And I, I get other people see the world you know differently, but I, I just think that for people who aren't in sort of any kind of minority, like maybe they just can't get it or don't get it or don't want to get it or aren't taking the time to get it. But like, I, I just feel like I have to constantly try. It'll be like, you know, my, my sort of life's mission to, to uh, get people to think about their place in the world. And I think just a lot of people, a lot of white people and a lot of white males haven't really ever had to assess their position in the world. Whereas, you know, being gay or being a woman like I always have to, of course, I always have to think about all of these things that are going on. Like, why are we teaching our girls to walk with their keys in their hand and not our boys to think about just not raping people, you know? So it's, it's kind of seems pretty simple to me. It's like, eh. seems simple to me. Um, but it's just not something people have to think about, but just, you know, constantly trying to like, just have a conversation. Cause I don't want to cut them out of my life. I don't think that does anything either. I think that only furthers the division, but I think that you can have a conversation while standing your ground on what you believe. Yeah. Um, and that's especially an important conversation I think people are having right now in the wake of this election, which I definitely, you know, kind of want to ask and get your thoughts about. But first, I need to go through some things in this book because I learned some things about you. I had no idea. And I hate to be that person that starts with something a little bit more salacious. But I had no idea you dated Abby Wambach. I had no <laughs> idea. I was like, wait, what? Did I miss something? <laughs> and I was like, well, I didn't know if everybody knew this. I'm like, well, 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 look at this. Look at this tea being dropped here in this this memoir. <laughs> it was kind of, you know what? I feel like if our relationship was like two years later, everyone would have known about it. It was like right on the cusp of, you know, Twitter. It was like free Instagram and like, no one it, like we you weren't really like putting your life on this like public forum it was still sort of the traditional like you would do an article or regular media and stuff like that i feel like if it was in the social media era we would have definitely probably just like come out it would have been like but we're not going to hide this but it was like kind of like right on that cusp and then it's just something that like just yeah kind of is i was like okay uh then the then to find out that you actually met sue when you were engaged to somebody else i did uh, not know that either <laughs> even though i should say um well one and for those who listening who don't know uh megan is recently engaged to sue bird um they have a million championships between them uh so um, i have like two and sue has like a lot <laughs> she has like a lot it's okay you, you you know you both weren't on a world stage um and yeah uh so oh Congratulations for that. The, the photo was was really gorgeous. Thank you. But yeah, I didn't realize that th that was how you guys met. And, you know, before people get to running away with it, there was no overlap. Right. Like you were just friends, as you explained in the book. Yeah. Like yeah. And you had to handle your breakup and then, yeah. you know, sort of uh, connect, um, you know, with Sue. Um, I'm wondering, though, at that beginning stage, because you sort of do talk about this, is that even though there was nothing physical going on, but you sensed there was a, a connection there. Like, what was that like and what led you to believe that there's something here other than just friendship? It was weird because it was like so hard and so amazing at the same time. I think there was like obviously something that was there. Uh, my fiance and I at the time, like things were fine, but it just kind of that whole year, it, it was 
you know, I, I think I was pulling away more and I needed, to, I think I said this in the book, I needed to be a lot more like upfront. And I think I sort of avoided that confrontation or avoided those hard conversations to kind of like keep the peace a little bit, but like clearly that really never works in, in relationships or in anything. Um, so then it was like this, I, I think I had already sort of opened myself up to the possibility obviously of other people and had already, you know, shut the door in one sense without really like doing it the right way. Um, which was hard because it's obviously like people aren't stupid. They know when you're feeling something they know when you have something else on your mind. So it ended up being a harder conversation with, with my fiance at the time, which I do regret. Like I, you know, I, I should have been more mature and, and been a little bit braver in, in having that. But at the same time, then I met Sue and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like a whole nother level of like, human connection that i just had never experienced before and like she's just so wonderful i mean everyone who you know knows her knows that and she's got such a low-key kind of i don't know just like stable like power to her in this way she's just kind of very calm and i think at, at that time in my life i was a little bit frenetic and uh you know coming off the olympics and we didn't do well and it was kind of controversy and it, coming back and kneeling and all of that it was like, all of a sudden this person just comes into my life who is like just this sense of calm and love. And like, she was just so chill and she's just so amazing. So it was like hard, but it was also, I mean, I think that's life too. We, we would love for things to be really simple and clear cut and, you know, A comes then B comes and that's how it goes, but that's really just not how life is. So I, I, I tried to handle it the best way that I could, but I, I couldn't wait to be with her, to be honest. Well, that is one of the things that is, um, you know, really remarkable about the insight you provide into your relationship with her is the fact that when it blossomed was during a time where uh, you were in, embroiled, as you said, in a controversy, you decided to take a knee uh, in protest of systemic racism and police brutality uh, in September 2016. And, um, you know, it really had as you know, to no one's surprise, it really had a dramatic impact on your life. And I, while I certainly remember when you took the knee, I remember some of the fallout. It was really fascinating and compelling to read what the slow fallout from that was from your for your soccer career. And it was quite a lot. And I don't know how many people realize the price that you actually paid um, for doing this. But when you think about everything that happened, the um, the backlash, um, being frozen out of, of the U.S. Uh, women's team, um, would you I'm sure you've been asked this before, but is there anything that you would do differently seeing how it all played out? I think the only thing I think about is would I have continued to kneel? That's the only thing where I still feel like I had a decision to make. The Federation had made a rule that, you know, arbitrarily, which they've obviously backtracked on because it was wrong from the beginning, it, that we had to stand for the national anthem. It's like, should I have like just continued to go in on that? But obviously coming off the period where, you know, basically for five or six months, I didn't play with the team. Um, you know, seeing what was happening to Colin, like, I mean, Frank is like, I didn't want to lose my job. And I, I had felt what it was like to be in the cold and not be able to talk about it as much and not be able to really have a platform. Like I wasn't, you know, Colin will have his platform forever because he's so huge and he's the first one to do it. And he's just, a, you know, a hero in that way. And he's just such an iconic figure, but it's like, I wasn't that. So it was kind of like, do I 
stand up and then have the opportunity to play and then continue to talk about it? Or are they really going to cut me? Like what there was, it was like, it was a rule, but there was no punishment attached to it either. So it was, it was just this weird thing. I would say that's the only thing that I still feel a little bit like, you know, Colin did it obviously. And, and he, you know, stood his ground and, um, you know, still being punished for that, which is horrible. But everything else, no, not at all. I, I feel like I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew exactly why I was doing it. Um, I wanted to have those conversations. Um, I probably wasn't ready for all of them, but like, when are you ever? And I feel like that's also, you know, the, the ultimate privilege to decide when you're ready to, you know, have the, have those conversations or put yourself in a situation that maybe you're not comfortable in. So all of that, I, I would say, no, I, I think it was necessary at the time. And I would, I was, I would definitely argue that if more white athletes did it, we would be in a totally different position. If more people were even just willing to talk about it. I mean, I think a lot of people didn't want to kneel for, you know, all of these reasons, which had nothing to do with what Colin was talking about, but the lack of willingness to talk about things to me basically said like, Y'all either just like believe Colin and all black people and people of color are like just lying. Like you either don't believe their lived experience or you just like don't fucking care. <laughs> so, you know, it's not to say that everybody had to kneel, but so many people were just like Homer Simpson on that. Like I'm, I'm out of this conversation. <laughs> Fading right into the bushes. <laughs> and right in, which was like, you know, it, it was so disappointing. I think, I think we're seeing it, you know, now with the election results and what everyone, you know, just a okayed for the last four years and um, how much people are willing to put up with. But yeah, it's, it's that part of it's disappointing, but I wouldn't change a thing. I think it was something that, you know, I, I couldn't not do. I think at, at, when I got to that point, when I feel like Colin gave me this opportunity for an action step that, you know, maybe I was searching for before I did a lot of obviously like research and just being a, a person in this country, like you would have had to willfully close your eyes to all of the articles and information and conversation happening around since, you know, since Mike Brown and Alden Sterling and Ferguson and, you know, summer of 2016. So at that point it was like Colin opened this door and there was like, there was no choice really about it. Well, I wouldn't say the problem is necessarily limited to white athletes not speaking out. I think we find in our society in general that there's a lot of white people who um, they may not agree with racism, but they're OK with being complicit with it. So why do you think that it's more difficult for white people in general to speak up on behalf of, of these issues? I think it requires of white people the realization and acceptance that pretty much everything we've been told about our country like isn't true we were not founded on life liberty and the pursuit of happiness we were certainly not founded on freedom the idea of the american dream of like you work hard you know you whatever follow the rules and you'll be successful i think is really hard for people to give up because if you don't have that then what do you do um, where that has worked for them and worked for their family and worked for people like them and who look like them um, and, and worked for a lot of people in this country. But I, I do think that it takes like a wholesale realization that like we are not the nation we think we are. 
not to say that there's not amazing things about us and that we could be that um, and that we could try to achieve those ideals and try to live that way. But uh, I just feel like people are like, well, we were founded on freedom and liberty. And so that's why we became so powerful and rich. And, you know, now we're here and it's like, is it really that big of a problem? And it's like, no, we became rich because we, you know, we had not even 250 years of slavery, a lot long, longer than that. And I would argue that we're still in it. And it's just like, we had that because we have free labor for all this time in a time when like labor was, was like the way you made money and the industrial, like everything. And I just think it, it, it requires people to look at themselves and give up this thing that like they hold so, so true. And it's not close to them because it's not many people that live in their communities or their neighborhoods or, or whatever it is. And, I don't know. I, I really struggle with it because it's just such a fact of life. It's such a, it's such a, an undisputed history of America. Like how can you agree that slavery happened and then not agree that there's systemic racism um, still happening in the most brutal and, and cruel form? I, I really don't understand that. Like Jim Crow laws were like not very far away. There's people in our lifetime right now that voted in this election that at a time in their life, they could not vote. Like, I don't understand the sort of this cognitive dissonance there. So it, I don't know. Well, the history part is the most unsettling because, um, you know, I, I made this comparison before uh, I read Isabel Wilkerson's wonderful book cast, which is, you know, life changing, much like warmth of other sons. And I had her as a guest on the podcast recently. And, you know, one one thing that um, she talks about is comparing sort of Nazi Germany um, to the U.S., not like a direct direct, but just showing that there are similarities there. And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, the thing is, when you go to Germany now, you don't see statues of Nazis. You don't see streets named after Nazis. You don't see bridges named after Nazis. Right. Like the, the part uh, the where Hitler's residence is, I think they like paved over it and it's like like you would never even know this they don't have these memorials but yeah in the u.s um i made this this observation about john lewis you know when he got his head cracked open on the on the bridge um the edmund pettus bridge edmund pettus was a kkk leader that bridge is still standing it's still named after this dude like we have these monuments to racism literally everywhere and it's like who does that no wonder we can't agree on what the actual history is because we're too busy sanitizing it and making it seem like, oh, I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. I was like, no, no, it was that bad. And we probably shouldn't have a whole bunch of monuments uh, memorializing the very worst of ourselves around this country. And yet we do, which is why I thought those monuments coming down were always important. It was symbolic more than anything. I say all this to say you say you're somebody who's educated themselves quite a bit about racial issues. What was it? that made you seek that education? Because I, I find that a lot of people just are not that intellectually curious about other races. Where did it start? I, I feel like it a little bit started just from my own life, being a woman on the women's national team from basically the moment we get on there, we're like, yeah, we're underpaid. We're always trying to get more money. Like we deserve more. So there's a little bit of that. Being a gay woman, um, I think I know at least what it, it's like to not have one or two rights in, in my life to look at the flag and understand that. So I, I think while it's absolutely not the same thing, I think I can use my imagination to stretch it to be the same thing and sort of understand that this is not happening. I think for me, I, it really boils down to while I have not lived a black experience, 
while I do not know that my family's not black, I don't have this historical, like, you know, I guess timeline to look at, like, it's either I believe what people are saying or I don't. And it's either you like believe, you know, that this is happening, which it is, or you think that like millions of people are just all making up the same story, which is impossible. Right. So it's like, there's so many things that you can look to. And I, I feel like people want all of this tangible evidence and they want to see it. They want to see it happening every day. They want to, you know, almost like experience it for themselves to really be able to believe it. And I'm like, just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean that I can't look at someone when they're telling me what's happening and me just believe that, like, where's the, the sort of trust in things. And so I think that was the, the start of it. And then once I kind of got, I think just like a little bit of information about, I'm like, there's so much that we just don't know. And I think the the education and the history piece is huge. Um, Nicole Hannah Jones should have like a statue in every every country or uh, every state in the entire country. Um, she should probably be the head of education. But it's like there's so much that we don't know. And I think I wanted to understand better all of the like little intricacies of it because I think what people need to understand too is is like it affects everyone negatively. Like this is not a good system. This is not a healthy system. This does not mean just because you're above someone that you actually like have a good life. And this is what I wonder, you know, a lot about white America, particularly poor white America is like the people in power are just telling you that like you're okay and you're better because you're better than black people or people of color, whatever it may be. Meanwhile, like they're keeping your life shitty too. Like they don't want you to have a good life either. We don't want to share the wealth in this country. We don't want to make sure everyone has education and healthcare and all of these things. So there's that part of it. And then it's just like, it, it's happening everywhere, every single day, all the time. And I think as we've, you know, been able to see more of it with cell phone footage and, you know, Black Lives Matter organization doing an incredible job to educate people among many others. It was just like, this is the biggest problem that we have in our country by far. And it's just cruel, frankly. I mean, it's just the, the level of cruelty that we're seeing with it of, of denying one's own experience is just like kind of unacceptable. And so I, I feel like I just couldn't get enough information about it and it was everywhere. And how do we do anything or do something to, to try to help? Now we spent um, the earlier part of this year where we were in this very intense racial conversation after Ahmaud Arbor and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, uh, a conversation that I don't recall across my lifetime us ever having, not in this particular way. And certainly not, it seems like for not for that sustained period of time, was there any part of you, especially given how much you'd spoken out and um, you know, you taking the knee that you felt, I don't know, validated is the right word, but I don't I don't know what the proper adjective, but how did that make you feel as somebody who had before was popular, had been discussing these issues and bringing them to the forefront? I really didn't because I think even like as it was all happening. Yeah, I think the easy thing would be like, oh, you're kneeling now. Like, that's that's interesting. You were so against it then. But it really was almost almost made me sad because nothing had really changed. It's just like the narrative had changed around it and it's like it's actually just a choice people are making 
whether they want to listen or not, or whether they feel enough pressure to say something or not. I, I saw that a lot with businesses, I thought, and different leagues and, um, you know, federations or whatever. Um, and I, I do think that it's like just a choice of whether we want to believe people or not and whether we want to do the work or not. And it was almost, it was like, I was happy that it was happening um, because at least more people were involved and, and hopefully this, you know, swell could not just be a wave, but, you know, be something that was lasting and sustainable. But yeah, in the same sense, it was kind of like, even like listening to Roger Goodell talk, it's like, you had to do two statements after four years, like you can't get it right. Like you don't know what to say. You, you know what I mean? It's just because what we're worried about, what upsetting people's feelings, like upsetting, you know, people's uh, view on the military or disrespect or whatever it is. So in a way it was just like, okay, how can we, you know, I guess, I don't know, just gather all of this power and interest and um, you know, willingness to talk about things and just move that forward and not focus on, you know, who did what, when or whatever, but it's still just kind of disappointing, you know, even the way that it's sort of played out this year is like, it, you know, we got to a height during the pandemic and we had the protests and everything. And then like when it really came down to it, a lot of people just still were like, eh, I'm okay with racism. And I'm just, I was just like, I feel like you said it too nice. It's like, you're either racist or you're at least okay with it. But I'm kind of like, if you're okay with it, like you kind of are. Yeah, you, you're racist. <laughs> exactly. You're racist. Yeah. yeah it, 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 that is kind of what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think in the beginning, you just saw a lot of people scared to not do anything, to not at least say something or put something on Instagram or whatever it was. But, I, you know, the, the lack of sustained effort and conversation and changing hearts around it, I think is a little disappointing. It's like, if you watched any of those, you know, videos of Maude Arbery or, I mean, George Floyd, anything, it's like, what are we talking about here? Like, these are not bad apples. These are not isolated incidents. These, these are, you know, hundred year long over and over horror stories that just reoccur. Yeah. And I, and the thing is they, everybody immediately had a test and the test of how much and how far that that conversation had progressed was called the presidential election. And so to see that it was still 70 million people was like, you know what, after all I've seen for four years, can I have four more of those? It's like, are you kidding me? Sign me up once more. And I'm like, uh, I thought like 240,000 people were dead, you know, and you would think that some things would automatically disqualify you from leading a country of this size and of this magnitude in the world. But apparently not systemic racism, not being a racist, not encouraging white supremacy and not, you know, playing a huge role in killing hundreds of thousands of people. None of those are disqualifying factors. I'm like, what are we doing here, man? Yeah. I'm like, this is nuts. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm grappling to understand a lot of it. I, I really like truly am. I, I just think that no one's life is really better. I think even if you are richer, you're not really better off. It's like, what world are we living in right now? And we Washington state, we just went on, you know, very strict protocols. Again, we have, you know, 250,000 people, I think dead and we're climbing exponentially. There's hate and division and angst and anxiety in the, it's just like, I don't think anyone's life is really better 
right now. I think people are just, you know, scared of, I think back to what I was saying, I think people are scared of giving up this idea of like what they are and what America is because they don't really know what's next, I guess. Equality. I don't know. <laughs> Seems cool to me. Yeah, yeah. That's not bad. That's not a bad trade-off, I would say. Um, all right. We're going to take a, a, a quick break, uh, Megan, to come back. I have more questions. Of course, even though I'm sure you don't have any, I'm still going to ask anyway about all the wedding details that you probably don't have, but I still want to know anyway. <laughs> um, but we'll be back with more with Megan Rapino on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Before the break, we were talking about the impact of this election. So, um, you know, as of the taping of this podcast, Donald Trump has not conceded. Uh, what are your overall thoughts on the election? How did it make you feel seeing what the results were? Um, you know, what was this moment like for you? I feel like it was really disorienting in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we had massive turnout on both sides, which inevitably is great. Like you want people to vote. You want people to be engaged in the civic process and in the political process. So that's great. Um, I mean, just kind of shocking numbers. I guess I shouldn't be shocked by white people where nothing we do should really shock anyone. Um, but I, I'm shocked by the amount of voting not in your best interest and not aligned with your best interest. So that was disappointing. I mean, I think from Trump, it's just, this is him. There is no plan. There is no like, you know, he's, he, he's a, he's a mad genius in, in a particular kind of way on, on social media and just the, the bluntness of his message, but there's no like grandmaster plan. He doesn't want to lead. He doesn't want to govern. He's sort of uh, an authoritarian, um, but in an untraditional sense, it's just like, I don't really care what happens just as long as I have power and I have money. Um, and you know, the people around me do, but honestly, I don't think he really cares. He would, he would throw Ivanka under the bus in, in a minute. Um, if it really came down to it, I think he would, he would do anything to save himself. So that part is wild. I mean, all the other, you know, Republican senators and Congress people and representatives, I think have shown who they really are. I think we should give them no grace whatsoever. This is like, you've had, I, I mean, honestly, the decision was made in 2012 and 13 and 14 and 15 and particularly 16, where it's like, that was the moment that you had to say what kind of person you were and what kind of, uh, ideals and things that you support. And like, you know, what, what's your base as a human being? Not right now. So I don't want to hear anything from anybody right now who is previously supported. We knew that he said who he was and we knew this man. So that's disappointing. Um, to see what is happening in the country, especially with coronavirus and see how many people are hurting. We can't pass a stimulus check. Uh, people, you know, are dying because they don't have health care. You know, all these things. It's just like, 
absurd to see the cruelty. And then even with, I mean, I, mean, I think it's incredible Biden and Harris, you know, particularly Harris uh, being the first black woman, the first Asian woman, like being the first woman, like that's just amazing. Like there is progress being made. And I think that we should cheer for that. But um, I think we have a long way to go. I think that we, we need to really, as a democratic party, as progressives, like fear, like what, you know, what, what do we really want to be? I think this sort of moderate thing is really like not that moderate and it's not really working for most of us. And, um, certainly not working for people of color. It's certainly not working, um, to address the wealth gap and education and all of this. I feel like we're, we're at like the later stages of all of these institutional failures that we've just sort of ignored for decades and decades and decades. And we're at this point where half the country believes wholeheartedly in conspiracy theories and half the country doesn't. And I'm like, that's a product of, a, of the failure of our education system at large. Like people should have a much better uh, ability to critical think from the education that we've received in this country. And we just don't. Nicole Hannah-Jones said in a, in a tweet, and it, I say it six times a week, we are not a nation of critical thinkers. And it, we're getting to this point where any conspiracy theory can be floated and people just feel comfortable believing it, going on a tangent a little bit. But I feel disoriented because I think we put so much effort and energy and like our lives into the election. And I think now that Biden Harris have won the election, now we're like, oh, damn, we have so much work to do. And it's going to be hard because people are tired and we have COVID fatigue and they're stressed out and it's going to get worse and we're going into winter and all of those things. But I think we just need maybe like take a little break and, and recharge or something. But yeah, it's a little I, I feel a little weird right now. Was there any part of you um, uh, that wanted to tweet? I don't, and I don't know if you did. Maybe you did and I missed it. But considering that the president had a lot to tweet about you, uh, I think it was last year too. God, last year feels like 35 years ago. Um, uh, a lot to tweet about you and saying you should win first and all this other dumb shit. Was there a part of you that had a tweet in drafts that you like, I would really. I'm going to pull it up. I'm going to pull it up. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I had to say something. I'm like, I love uh, Yeah, you have to. This was your moment. Yeah. Anybody right. that he attacked, uh, I felt like I certainly took my moment, not necessarily directed specifically at him, but at a lot of his supporters who have been sending me threats and hate mail for like literally three or four years now. I'm like, okay, middle finger to the sky to all of y'all. So it's just like that. So what was your tweet? <laughs> oh yeah, I did. So I had the video of me saying, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to the fucking white house. And then I said, update. I can't get to the fucking white house fast enough now. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I had to, you had I, to. Have, I have, dra I have drafted so many of, uh, you know, across these last, like whatever year and a half or however long it's been. And I'm just like, you know what, wait for your moment where petty Betty can live her full best life. And this, this was it. I, I had to, and I almost don't even want to, cause it's like, then it just, you know, you're putting him back in the conversation, but I was like, I just had to throw up the like, I can't wait to get there. Yeah. Well you, I mean, I, and I feel like you're owed another one because the day he actually has to leave, like where you see that long exit out the white house. Oh, trust me. I got about six tweets right in the draft. Oh yeah. No, it's <laughs> definitely like you about to lose your job. <laughs> you about to lose. Someone put 
put up uh, her Venmo. Like, obviously, the the woman. I hit that Venmo. I was like, here you go. I, I, oh, I owe you. We all owe you for this. No, it, it is. I feel like we got to, like, keep, you know, we got to keep the, the joy and, like, keep our humor a little bit in it all in all of it and it's been so just not funny the whole time so i was like if we can just get a little petty dig in like i I think it's i think it's fine yeah a lot of people are owed um well you have uh, you do have an incredible uh, amount of joy in your life in the sense that you are again now engaged so i need to hear the full story how did this happen did you see it coming you know all those particular details (laughs) yeah so uh so i actually uh proposed to sue but i don't think either of us saw it coming so it was like i think in typical megan form like i had been thinking about it a lot um definitely a lot this year i mean you know i feel like in one way, it was just so amazing to be able to spend the time that we did together during quarantine. You know, we, we would have never spent this time. We travel all the time. We're all over the world. Like we just in a normal life, we're on planes every week and, and doing all these things. So I was really thankful for that. Um, and it just like solidified everything that, you know, I felt for her. And so I had been thinking about it, but I didn't really have a plan, like a specific, like, you know, I'm going to walk you out to this area or whatever. Um, we took a little vacation, uh, with a few of our friends right after Sue got out of the bubble. She turned 40, a couple of her other friends turned 40, but I like, didn't have a ring. I didn't, have, <laughs> didn't really like have a plan, but we were in this beautiful place. And I just kind of thought like th- the moment just sort of struck, we were in the pool. I was kind of like laying on the ledge and I think she's like sort of swam over and either kissed me or something. And one of our other friends was like, oh, is this a proposal? You know, we, we were a couple deep, it was deep in the afternoon. Um, and I just was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I'm around like all these people who we all love. We're in a beautiful place. And it just was one of those things like, I feel like why wait any longer? I was like, I can get the ring later. I wear a ton of rings all the time, a bunch of just gold bands. So I took one off my finger, put it on hers. And it was, it was one of those moments where like our friends kind of knew what was going on, but they really didn't. And it like took everyone by surprise. Um, so while there was no like actual plans, I had kind of been tooling around with it in my head. You have been thinking about it. Yeah, okay. I've been thinking about it. So I was like, this is very us. This is very me and the way that like, I'll just, you know, kind of spring it on you, but I've, I've been preparing for a while. Were you at all nervous? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Cause like, I felt totally solid in us, but then there's always a like, oh, what if she doesn't want to? You know, like, what if I've read the room wrong for four years? No. But I felt pretty good about it. I felt pretty good about it. But I just wanted to make sure that the mom was like special for her. And that's what like she wanted, you know. I wasn't going to like take her out in front of a baseball game or something. That would be, that would be wild. But thank you for not doing the sports proposal. Oh, just God. the jumbotron. The, it, like, thank you for not doing that. I think that's like the worst thing ever. Thank God. People do that. And I'm like, listen, you, everybody needs to, you know, do whatever makes them happy. But I'm like, oh, gosh, that seems very stressful and like just too much. There's too many strangers involved for that. <laughs> Definitely. So um, I know it's it's probably difficult because we are still in a pandemic and we don't really know when we're coming out of it. But have you guys been able to even preliminarily think about how you might want your wedding to be and, and how you where you might want it to be or any any of the details you've been able to work through any? I mean, definitely post COVID because this is, it would be, I would feel like socially irresponsible to do anything like during COVID. And even the people that have done it, the hoops that you have to, it's like, it's hard enough to plan 
this in and of itself and then to do it you know you got testing and masks and where are we and are we traveling and all these things you know i have a big family and we have tons of friends and so that that i think we're just going to go post covid i think i would like to do a, a destination type maybe and like do a long one like a week long kind of thing where we can actually like see people and do the whole thing. I mean, wedding, like a one day wedding is amazing. It's beautiful. It's such a fun night, but it goes by so fast for, you know, the people who get married and for all the guests and everything. And it's just kind of over in a flash. So anything for like an excuse for a week long vacation too, seems just seems smart. Well, um, you know, just uh, as unsolicited advice to somebody who got married last year and thank God I got married pre pandemic is, um, you know, wherever you do it, uh, make sure you soak up every moment because it is true that it does go by really fast. Um, In the moment, I think we enjoyed every single second of our wedding, but you look up and you're like, it's like an amusement park ride that you really love. Like, damn, I wish I could do that all over again, right? (laughs) So a destination wedding from that standpoint is really smart because you get to prolong it and be there. Um, And that helps, although I'm not going to lie. I mean, we got married in um, Orange County. and for a lot of people that came in for our wedding, that that was like a destination. But I was very happy to leave everybody after two days. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was very happy to leave everybody. I'd be like, okay, now we can like get about the business um, uh, of our honeymoon. Uh, so in here, I was thinking you might have one in Reading. Like I, I thought Reading might be, <laughs> you're like, no. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's too hard to get to. Uh, yeah, no. Maybe like a little family engagement party or something, but. But you're like, no, after that. So how did uh, how did your family react? I'm sure they probably weren't surprised. Yeah, they, they were surprised because I didn't tell anyone. My sister was like, why didn't you tell me? And I was like, oh, I just didn't really like tell anyone. But I thought about it, but then like we didn't connect. And um, they were so excited. They love Sue. Um, and I think they see like, you know, how comfortable, how much I love her, how good she is for me. And uh, I, I think they see vice versa as well. So they were excited. And then, and then it was like, where is it? And then it was like, well, you know, you have to invite if you invite because you have to invite. And I was like, yeah, mom, I know, mom. Yeah, you got a big family, mom. I know. I know. Ooh, good luck with that scene chart. That's all I was. I'm so wish you, I'm gonna wish you well right now. Good luck with it. Um, You know, you 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 all have a, a interesting dynamic. I mean, being that you're both professional athletes, um, you're both, you know, very competitive and you're both famous. You're both in the in the spotlight. How are those dynamics? Um you know, how do you navigate them? You know, the fame, the playing careers, like, how do you do that? I know it's not like a simple, easy answer, but you know. (laughs) Yeah, it it is interesting. And I think it's, it's been more interesting, especially since last year, Uh, the last couple years, really, I would say both of us have uh, kind of been on rocket ships in in a little bit of a way the last couple of years. And I think putting us together is even a different kind of element with that. It's always interesting, because to us and to the people closest to us and just our friends, like we're just us, you know, it's like, obviously we know what we do and, you know, we know sort of our place in the world, but, um, you know, we're really chill. We like to just sit on the couch and like order takeout and, you know, watch a show and chill out. Um, but I think we try to enjoy it as much as possible. I think we're in a really like special time in both of our lives and careers and, you know, um, being really, lucky to to be where we are and have the success that we have um and i think we've both really taken it as like a responsibility but in a positive way of using 
you know, not just our platforms, but our relationship. I think we do understand having two people like us together as a couple um, is something different that we've seen that we, than we've seen. And I think something important for LGBTQ couple. And so we try to do, you know, everything we can in that space to just be ourselves, which I think helps normalize and is a positive thing. Um, there's a lot of perks that come along with it too. You know, you just like, you know, you can walk into a restaurant and people know who you are. Sometimes you get a drink. Sometimes you get a reservation you needed that you didn't think you were going to get. Um, so try to enjoy it. But, but I think for us, just like, you know, being really honest and, and trying to be really down to earth about it um, for, for our relationship, because that's the most important thing. It's like, if we're good at home, then, you know, we can sort of go out and be our best selves. Um, but yeah, it, it is an adjustment. It is kind of weird because to us, we're just us, but we're not that, you know, we're walking through the airport and people, it's always funny to who knows who and like, who doesn't, you know, like we've been, there was a, a few years ago, we went to a Sounders game. So we're like walking up to the soccer game, you know, so I was like running up to Sue and they're like, Oh my God, I love you so much. Like, blah, 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 can I get a picture? And it's like, I'm taking a picture of Sue and a fan as we're going into a soccer game. You know, it's like, they have no idea who I am like whatsoever. And it's always funny. I'm just like, if you love like women's sports and you love one of us, how do you not know the other one? Like, how do you not know one of us? But it's always kind of kind of funny in that way. So yeah, it's like, it's weird, but you know, celebrities weird just in general, like people, you know, being, we're kind of like at this good level, I think, like, I think if we were like, you know, proper, proper famous, like, I think I would hate that you can't really go anywhere and you can't even like live your life. And I think we're still able to live our lives and, and be able to get a lot. Like of you have love. just the right amount of fame where you could still, you could get that dinner reservation but you know you're not you're not going to be mobbed every single no, place that you go. No, yeah. it's like the that's like the sweet definitely. spot of Spain. Exactly, you know, definitely. Yeah. So between the two of you, who knows the most about the other sport? Ooh, I think I know more about basketball, but Sue's like picks up on soccer a lot. Like she doesn't watch a lot of soccer, whereas like I watch a lot of basketball. I watch all the NBA and all the WBA and um become like a, a big fan in that way but yeah i think i know more i think i know more <laughs> yeah, i'm gonna take that one you gonna take that one okay um i assume you know maybe just kind of goofing around do you ever take her one-on-one -on -one or like you guys play basketball or does she try to play soccer with you <laughs> we never we never really do soccer i feel like that's like too dangerous for like for like both of us <laughs> it's, it's too much variability um, I actually did, you know, obviously going in the pandemic this year and her trying to prepare for the bubble, uh, we were trying to be super safe, couldn't really like be around other people. So I was having to, to do, uh, a lot of the defense and I, I mean, I think I'm pretty good. I'm definitely like, you know, a fowler. I foul like all the time and it's kind of annoying, but I think if like, you know, take us back to when we were in high school, she would have been a better soccer player than I would have been a basketball player. But at this point, I'm better at basketball than than she is at soccer. But yeah, we've we've gone like one on one a few times, and it's just she's like so good. You know, it's like you know she's good, and yeah, it's just like you know it. But then you go one on one, and I'm just like, wow, this is like this is wild. Like I would love to play in the WNBA one day. I think that would be so cool because I love basketball so much. And then I like see them play, and then I play against 
her and like realize the speed and the level. And I'm like, <laughs> I couldn't be the hundredth person on any of these teams. Like everyone is so amazing and so good. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty funny to be honest. Cause I try really hard, but I'm really not that good. Um, you made me think while you, you were talking, uh, I meant to ask you, ask you this in the first half of the podcast, so I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, I brought up your brother and, and how very personally you wrote about him in, in one life in, in your uh, memoir. Um, cause you'd said in there at the time, like you hadn't really seen him in a while. Have you, I know it's been a pandemic, but had you been able to see him in any space, like in, in the, in recent years, I guess. The last time I saw him was last fall. It must have been August or so, August or September. We had a game out in L.A. after the World Cup, um, I think, in Pasadena. So I saw him then. I haven't seen him since. My family had seen him after that. Um, he had come up to Reading, where we're all from, but I haven't seen him since then. Um, going through that ex- experience and journey with him, um, uh, w- would you say like you're – you know, there was obviously an impact on your relationship anytime it is when you're dealing with an addict. But um, in your later years, as you thought more about that relationship, what do you think about maybe differently now than maybe you did at the time that you were going through it? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I feel like I understand, you know, addiction, not only so much more, but in such a different way. I think when I was younger, you know, we were 10, my sister and I, we were 10 when we kind of found out, you know, what was happening and all that. So you're confused, you're upset. I think I was really angry with him for a long time of like, why would you make these choices to hurt all these people that you love and do, do this to yourself. Um, and I think as I've gotten older and started connecting a lot more dots, like it's a, you know, it's a disease first of all. And of course there's choices in it, but you know, however much pain I feel, like imagine what that person feels having to live with this disease and, and go through it. And I think with my brother too, like, you know, I, I've, as I've started to understand more about the criminal justice system and big pharma and the opioid crisis, I'm like, well, yeah, of course, like, of course he's one of millions of people who've been caught up in this. And at such a young age to be put in the criminal justice system, because we have such a cruel and punitive system. Like he didn't need that. He needed therapy and he needed, um, you know, rehab and, and he needed maybe job training or, or an alternate path that he could be on. And instead he got put on this particular path that essentially, uh, very few ever get back from. I mean, if you're a multiple time felon, if you're a drug, drug addict, um, if, if you, you know, have all these things on your record, like, what are you supposed to do? Like, seriously, understanding that better while still struggling, like how sad it is and how, you know, I'm, I'm scared for him every day, um, and, and worried about him. And I, you know, it's like in the same sense, I don't, I don't want to enable him in these like, you know, bad things he's doing, but also where's the, how do you know when you're helping or when you're enabling or when you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing? So I feel just sad in a lot of ways. And I think sad for so many people who are ensnared in this and you know I, I just think about the opioid crisis and what that's done to our country and how how much not people's fault it is who have drug addictions or um you know who have been ensnared in it but also even if it is their fault like okay <laughs> is this their fault like we just throw them to the wolves like what kind of society is that we have, we have such a punitive like if 
if you do this one wrong thing, then that should, you know, define the rest of your life when I think we need to have a much more restorative type of just feeling about, you know, criminal justice and all of that. Um, and obviously the laws need to change and that's a whole nother story, but yeah, it's, it's, it's always hard. I think anybody who knows anybody with addiction, it's always hard. It's always a difficult, you know, sort of open wound that you're constantly tending to. So um, I'm sure it it probably isn't lost on you that there's a lot of people uh, who might consider you, despite the fact your career has been extraordinary, they might consider you more of an activist than a, than a soccer player. (laughs) You know, you're you're one of times most a hundred most influential people uh, of the year and you've received a lot of accolades um, for the work you've done in the social justice space. But nevertheless, you know, soccer is, is your love and that's what you do. So, um, what do you have to tell me about what the, the future holds? I think a lot of people assume 2019, that was, that was probably Megan Rapinoe's final world cup. Um, but we don't get to write your career ending. You do. So, um, so where do you stand about, um, where your soccer, uh, career is right now? You coming back, like what, what, what are we looking forward to here in terms of soccer? I mean, this year has been really difficult because I feel like I'm having to, even pre-pandemic, not just having to answer that question. Um, and I think it's a fair question. Like sometimes people get asked about their careers and uh, just because you're old, you start getting asked about it. But I think it was probably a, a fair question um, for me. So I was already kind of starting to like, okay, how long? Obviously I want to go to the Olympics and, and do that, but what's sort of past that? But now with the pandemic, like, you know, eventually like I need to start training with the team again and playing. And we had, you know, our league had uh, the challenge cup earlier in the summer, and then they played a few games in the fall. The national team has played a few games. They're heading to the Netherlands to play now. And I'm like, frankly, I really don't feel comfortable or like feel okay about, you know, traveling and being around other people. And I think there's safe ways to do it. And we're all just trying to like do our best in this moment. And, you know, we've seen bubble situations with, NBA and the WNBA that worked great. Um, NFL's worked less great. MLB worked less great. I think NHL did okay. College football is a total mess. Like, you know, it's like people are trying to do things, but I don't know. It just, it feels difficult. So I'm like, I need to play, but you know, I'm, I'm also having these concerns about the virus, but like, eventually you have to decide, are you, are you going to, I can't just like show up in June and be like, I'm going to the Olympics, you know, that's not going to work. So that question is coming pretty soon. Um, as, you know, the world sort of catches on fire um, even more with COVID. I would like to still keep playing. Um, I still feel really excited about playing. I definitely want to play um, if I can, or at least try to play in this next Olympics. Um, I, I think probably a, a bigger conversation with myself will have to happen after that. Cause that's like, okay, these are the next four years of your life. Like, do you want to do this? Is it something you're interested in? Um, or does it even feel right? But I think for now I want to, um, and that's kind of the the plan and that'll be, you know, sort of what all my decisions are informed on. But I really do love doing all the other stuff that I do as well. And I think part of my frustration with the whole, like the whole situation really is that because I don't make that much from playing for the national team and actually like my, my money's from soccer specific and I make so much more outside of soccer that's messed up. Like I shouldn't have to feel like I have to do all of this other stuff in order to, you know, capitalize on, on my career. And it's almost like, it's almost like you, you do all this stuff in soccer. You, you train as hard as you can, you sacrifice everything, you do all this stuff. 
to like play the best that you possibly could really to like traditionally like get the contract, but there's no contract to get for us. So it's like, you do all of that only to basically be forced to step a little bit away from soccer because you have to do all these other appearances. And now you're like, your level's going to go down because you can't afford to not take these other opportunities. And so from a financial like security standpoint, like I make so much more doing other stuff than I do actually doing my craft. And so for a female athlete, you know, and I think particularly an older one, it's a little bit of a, a quandary, I feel. So it's like, how much do you spend on this side of the appearances and even just stuff that I like to do, activism and all that kind of stuff. And then how much do I spend actually on my craft? And like, am I just putting everything into my craft while sacrificing my financial future and like security or do I flip flop it? So it's, it's tough for female athletes in that way. We never get to play at our best to secure the contract so we can continue to play at our best. Um, because it, it it feels like your your celebrity is subsidizing your soccer career, which is very backwards, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. totally it's totally backwards. There's there's certain things where I just can't afford, and and in good conscience, I just can't say no to. But that takes me away from being able to put everything I have into soccer. Well, one of the things um, you certainly talk about in the book, and uh, of course, anybody's been following along is. Um, the national team's fight for equal pay. And there was a big ruling that happened over the summer. Again, one of those many huge news stories that happened this year that got kind of swaddled up in some larger conversations. Uh, I think most people looked at that, um, at least I would like to thank people with any sense, that that ruling um, that was in favor of the United States Soccer Federation was a farce <laughs> and ridiculous. So um, I guess I'm wondering for you guys, where does the fight go from here? Mm -hmm. So the, the ruling basically left a couple of claims. They were like how we travel, what hotels we stay in, sort of like lifestyle claims. And then the major blow was on the bulk of the compensation claims. So in order to appeal the compensation claims, we had to settle um, or go to, go to court on the other one. So we're basically in the process of, of settling those. All the court cases are so messed up right now because of COVID and delayed, but we're able to settle those. So the next step will be taking um, the ruling that the judge had up to the next level. I think it's the ninth circuit. So we'll appeal it there. Um, and, you know, it'll be a longer process, of course. Um, it'll probably be another year, um, I would say, depending on the delays of the court. But it almost like solidified even more the case that we had because I just felt the court missed the nuance of discrimination. And it's like, of course, if we could have gotten the same contract as the men, we would have agreed to that contract. We knew that the contract that we were agreeing to was less than in every line item than the men, but it was like, that's the position that you get put in. You either strike or you either make a fuss or you either, you know, fight as hard as you can, but eventually like you get, you know, you get to the top of the glass ceiling and then you, it's like, that's kind of what it is. So it, it almost strengthened it in a way. It was like, okay, you're still not seeing it this this fight still still has to be had um but i feel good about it still um i think the team feels good about it and it's just gonna take a little bit longer than we wanted uh did you guys ever consider striking yeah we definitely considered it um it part of the diff you know the difficult part i think about striking is you have the entire membership that you're having to take into account so maybe a me or Alex Morgan or Carly Lloyd or, you know, whoever has been on the team a long time, 
we're like, yeah, I could sweat it out for however long. But a player who's brand new, who's not only uncertain of their position on the team, but also financially uncertain, this might be the first or second year that they're actually making money. You know, they can't really afford to, you know, just go. And so that's, that's the tactic of, you know, the, the labor relation is to basically bleed out the labor force. And how long can you hold out? It's certainly not as long as we can hold out. That's usually what happens. Um, and it was like, is that the best thing? Um, we want to keep playing. We had the World Cup coming up, obviously, the next year. So it, it was definitely something we talked about. But, I mean, striking is like, I, I think people always think just like, oh, you should, you should strike. But it's like, that's the worst possible thing that could happen. And everything else has to be on fire in order for you to strike. And I feel like we've put ourselves in a position now. Well, yes, we're in this lawsuit, but our, our new contract is also coming up next year. And so... We're certainly not going to be accepting anything, anything less than potentially be going for something more um, in the next contract. All right. Well, um, you know, Megan, we have solved racism. We've taken a little yep. dent into sexism, misogyny and, and homophobia. So now it's time for the fun questions before I get you out here. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. Or you can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. Uh, play a little game called This or That with all of my guests. And so very much looking forward to see how you do in this game. I'm going to give you two choices. Oh, dear. Yep. That pressure's on. I mean, it's not like World Cup pressure, but it's pressure. <laughs> I don't know. This is Jamel Hill Paw. This is like Yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm going to give you two choices. You got to pick one. Um, you just have to pick one just because. <laughs> all right. The 2015 uh, World Cup team or the 2019 World Cup team? 19. Ah, look at that. Are you saying that because you, you said that because you won all them awards. I love y'all 15ers, but. Yeah, you said that because you won all them awards in 2019. That might be it. I was much more important in 19. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad at you. Look, if you can't brag on yourself, you don't, you know, what, what do you got? Uh, better Nipsey Hustle song, Hustle and Motivate or Grinding All My Life? I think Hustle and Motivate. I, I like that. That was like, those two were like really my mains during the World Cup. I like Hustle and Motivate. <laughs> uh, who's got the better shoe game, you or Sue? Sue, by by far. I wish, but I, yeah, not even close. <laughs> All right. Um, who has more famous contacts in their phone, you or Sue? I think me, but it's it's real close. Yeah, I think me though. I, I save everyone. You say everyone. <laughs> I don't know when I'm going to need you. <laughs> uh, but is there anybody who told you that they were a fan of yours that you like truly did not expect? God, I'm really bad at this. I know there has been. <laughs> Maybe like Natalie Portman. Yo, she wrote a blurb for your book, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. And I didn't really know it at the time, but she ended up, you know, being really involved. She's she's uh, one of the owners with the LA team now. And actually, fun fact, she went to high school with Sue. Random. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Random. <laughs> okay. All right. And finally, uh, fried chicken or pasta? Fried chicken all day. I love both, but I fried chicken is like my favorite food ever. Any any type of way. All right. Well, you got a favorite spot in the country, in the world? I don't know. Well, Denise, Denise, my mom makes a pretty, pretty mean fried chicken. Um God, favorite spot. I don't know if I have a favorite spot. Um, I do love like the wings, the flat ones though. That, You're flat? Yeah. Flats I'm over flat. drums? Yeah, definitely. Communist. <laughs> <laughs> She's a socialist. 
<laughs> she's a socialist. That proves it right there. Let me go run into Fox News and tell them. Right, <laughs> yeah, Bart. Exactly. This is what proves it. It's not the kneeling. It's the fact that she prefers flats over drums. Drums are just so easy. They're meteor. I don't get it. I think I don't like the too much media. I like more like the crunch on the skin. I tell you, you think you know people. I know. What do you know? Um, no, but I, especially after this book, I mean, we've gotten a, a chance to to interact a few times. I've always enjoyed um, your company and, and just, I love you and Suda Pieces. This book is really um, well done. Easy read. Uh, everybody should certainly check it out. It's called One Life. Um, appreciated is your honesty and, and learning more about your journey. And I can't wait to finish this last 50 pages or so. So hopefully you're not, if you drop more tea at the at the last 50, I'm going to be pissed that I didn't get a chance to ask you about it. We can do a follow-up if you need Yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, we'll do a follow-up. So anyway, um, good luck with all the future wedding plans. Hopefully 2021 will not be a wash, but because um, so you guys can have the wedding you definitely deserve. So um, thanks, Megan, for joining me. Uh, those listening, y'all know what's coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. to address some particularly repugnant fuckery going down in my home state of Michigan, which has gotten me in a fuck it, I'm bothered kind of mood. The election canvassing board of Wayne County, which is the county that Detroit is in, met last week to certify the county's presidential results. It should have been a mere formality. Instead, it turned into a glaring example of how in 2020, black people still have to fight for the most basic of freedoms. The certification board deadlocked after two Republican members of the board, Monica Palmer and William Hartman, voted against certifying the results. Now that's bad, but it gets worse. Monica Palmer, the chair of the board, said she would be open to certifying the vote in communities other than Detroit. Gee, I wonder why. Could it be because Detroit is 80% black? Everybody knows we don't fuck with Donald Trump. Keep in mind that there will be voting discrepancies in every election, but they are usually very nominal. Also keep in mind that there were more voting discrepancies in Livonia, which is a stone's throw from Detroit. But the reason Monica Palmer and William Hartman didn't give a shit about that is because Livonia is 90% white. So in case it's not clear, these pathetic last ditch efforts to challenge the presidential election results all seem to be following a familiar pattern. The president's legal team is challenging the results in Philadelphia, which is 44% black, challenging the results in Milwaukee, which is about 70% black. And then there's South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who pressured Georgia's Secretary of State, who is a Republican to disregard legally cast absentee ballots. So this is their way of saying white votes matter, black votes don't. Thankfully, Monica Palmer and William Hartman's attempt to summon their inner Jim Crow won't work. After being excoriated by citizens for three hours, Palmer and Hartman changed their votes and the results were certified. But of course, because these two are shameless and despicable, they sign affidavits the following day, rescinding their votes. But at least from everything I've read and what I've been told, that shit ain't going to happen. How they voted is how it will be. But I want everyone listening to really think of everything black people have had to do 
and have to continue to do just to vote. Black folks have had to endure literacy tests, poll taxes, grandfather clauses, being tortured, killed, brutalized, all to participate in a so-called democracy that has never considered us and never protected us. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody, and stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Berner is our technical director and Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, supervising producer is Jifa Yador. Executive producer is Erica Clark and project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. This or that music, the choice is yours. Revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Peep Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. 